Welcome to the Lisa Wentz Show. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. Today's guest is Dr. Adam Hodges. He's a sociocultural linguist who received his PhD from University of Colorado in 2008. His research interests center on how language impacts contemporary social and political issues, such as the collective enactment of racism or the role language plays in politics. He has written two books, including The War on Terror and When Words Trump Politics, Resisting a Hostile Regime of Language. It is an honor to have you here. Welcome, Dr. Hodges. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about your primary focus and your research. Sure. So I work within the uh, wide-ranging field of sociocultural linguistics. So it draws from several uh, disciplines, such as linguistic anthropology, sociolinguistics, and discourse analysis. Um, I, I work within a linguistics department currently, but a lot of the work that we do is interdisciplinary. Um, I'm primarily interested in looking at political discourse and the way language sort of intersects with many of the social and political issues that are relevant uh, to us in U.S. society. Tell me a little bit about, and I'm assuming that's why you've written the books you've written, tell me a little bit about your latest book. Sure. So my latest book, uh, when, Word, when Words Trump Politics, this is um, a collection of essays that I wrote over the first two years of the Trump administration, uh, compiled them together into a book format, which came out at the end of 2019. Um, really just looking at a lot of the, the moments <laughs> that unfolded during those first few years of the, of the Trump administration and trying to understand the way that language was being shifted by uh, this unconventional president. Mm -hmm. And is there anything specific that you really found startling, uh, surprising, a few key points that, that you'd like to share? About the presidency, well, I mean, I think a lot of you know a, a lot of us tend to think about his use of Twitter, um, and in particular the inflammatory use of Twitter um, that really allowed him to to make his mark on the political scene. So, you know, I do start off the book by looking a little bit at the way that he um, is known for insulting people on Twitter and really using sort of a a pretty simple formula to arrive at these numerous tweets that that we see emanating from his uh, Twitter feed. Um, you know, I think another thing that that Trump is really known for is sort of pushing the boundaries of truth in discourse. Um, and so that's another thing I, I I look at is you know sort of this post-truth era. What does that mean exactly? Um, you know, what What does Trump do with language to sort of stretch the boundaries of what is deemed plausible? So one of the things I look at is this idea of plausible deniability in politics and the way that, that Trump really sort of stretches, um, stretches that language game in a way that I think a lot of people would be hard pressed to, to see what he's doing as plausible, but yet it still provides enough of a veneer of deniability that you know, he and his supporters are able to sort of hide behind that, even when he says the most outlandish things. Mm -hmm. So do you, would you consider this similar to gaslighting? I think so. I think there's a lot of um, overlap there. 
Um, you know, I, I guess I see gaslighting more as a psychological concept, but one of my colleagues coined this term called metapragmatic gaslighting, which I thought was a really interesting way to talk about what Trump does. And this was Aurora Donzelli. Um, metapragmatic is just the way that we, we sort of step back from language and we talk about the meaning of language, what language is doing in particular moments. So that's what we mean by that term metapragmatic. And the metapragmatic gaslighting is because Trump is always stepping back and trying to, you know, claim plausible deniability in a way that really stretches all of our collective understanding of what he was doing in the first place. And so there is that, that, that aspect of gaslighting where he's kind of manipulating and, and making us question our own understanding of, of reality in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Just to make this make sure that this is relatable to the listeners, mm-hmm. in simple terms, from my perspective, gaslighting is when someone is telling you that what you're seeing and hearing isn't real, right? Because what they're wanting to do is make you question your own judgment. And, exactly. And if it's somebody who is an autocrat or if it's somebody who has uh, is a dictator or an abusive bully or anything like that, somebody who wants to control or have power over you, they do it so that they can do that. They can have control and power over you because you no longer can trust your instincts or you begin to question what you're seeing and hearing, right? So there's an obvious, very obvious motivation behind somebody who is the wrong kind of leader. If, let's just call it that for now. <laughs> Probably well said. Sound, pro- really? It sounds like I'm uh, yeah. dumbing it down a little bit for myself, but just to make sure that we're clear. And I also want to ask you about, um, you know, one of the things that drove me crazy, if I can vent for a second, for those four years that Trump was uh, in the executive branch, a lot uh, in, of people in the media and, and, and beyond were constantly saying, can you believe he just said this? Can you believe he just said this? And at a certain point, it's it's like, why are we they even asking us if we can believe it? Yes, we believe it. We've been watching this go on for years and years. And even if it's uh, people who were his supporters, uh, why even ask them, can you believe he just said this? Believe me, they believe it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not so sure that I'm not trying to pick on the media here. Um, I think that most news stations... I would like to believe that most news stations, most media outlets are trying to be uh, somewhat fair. They're trying not to give too much of their own opinion. But we did see that deteriorate in the face of several attacks um, from Trump and in the face of some of the atrocities that, that occurred during his administration. I'm not sure if you want to speak to that at all, but I'm also interested in just how the media then discusses these issues, right? Not not just how he would discuss them. Right. So when you're saying deteriorating, you mean that sort of the media is slipping away from that supposed neutral objectivity? Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, you know, one could argue that in the first place, why were they even pretending to take that stance in the face of such egregious... <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, instances of, of what was being said. Um, so I think we did see, you know, towards the end, especially with the, you know, the attack on the Capitol uh, this past January, we're finally starting to see media organizations, I wouldn't say take uh, the role of, you know, sort of an advocacy role, but certainly recognizing that part of their their job as journalists is to, you um, 
you know, report in a democratic society. And when the democratic values of that society are being attacked, you can't just sort of step back and pretend like you're in this uh, neutral observer stance to to report on that. So mm-hmm. um, I think we have s- sort of seen that shift like you've you've described. Mm-hmm. Um, There's something else that I want to touch on with like, I don't want to stay on on Trump forever in this conversation, of course, but there's maybe one or two more pieces I do want to ask you about. The first one is the sociopathic tool. We already described one, gaslighting. Another mm-hmm. one is to give directions or orders while sounding somewhat indirect so as not to be able to be blamed for it, at least in the mm-hmm. their own pathological mindset. Um, so, for instance, let's say the, the, the insurrection. He didn't literally say march to the Capitol, break through the windows, hunt hunt down Mike Pence. But they knew, at least to some degree, that he, that's what he was telling them to do. Would you agree yeah. with that? Exactly. Yeah. And this is part of that, that broader idea of plausible deniability, which is largely based on the use of indirect discourse. So that if you can implicitly communicate something then that leaves open the possibility if you're called out for it to then later come back and deny that you meant what you implied because you didn't say it explicitly, right? You didn't say it in, in, in so many words. So, you know, Trump really does a nice job of sort of um, exploiting that gap between what linguists call semantic meaning. So sort of the, the strict literal meaning um, found in the words versus what we call pragmatic meaning or, you know, the, the, the implicit meaning that is contextually derived, that's derived from the context of situation in which we're using discourse and we're, we're receiving the discourse and making sense of the discourse. Um, so he's able to implicitly communicate a lot of messages that, um, you know, whether, again, kind of going back to what I said earlier, whether or not most people actually believe uh, that he didn't mean what he said, I, you know, I think that's definitely up for debate, but he's able to at least pretend like he said something else. Um, Mm -hmm. And that sort of provides that veil of plausible deniability for him to hide behind. Mm -hmm. You know what this particular situation reminds me of, and it might sound a little left left field uh, for you and for the listeners, but it quite frankly, it reminds me of the assassination attempt of President Ford, I believe it was, a uh, little bit before my time, but uh, at least before my news reading time, when Charles Manson from prison told his uh, ardent supporter, Lynette Fromm, to do something big, to cause such an uproar that the media will have to come back to him and give him focus and attention, do something mm-hmm. big is what he kept saying to her. And there was probably a little bit more that I'm missing there. That's something big she interpreted the way he wanted her to interpret it. And she tried to, she didn't try to kill the president. If she had tried to kill the president, he would have been shot. She was in close range. She just simply, you know, attacked the president so that she would be arrested so that there'd be news coverage and so forth. How is that, uh, from the perspective of Manson's intent, how is that really, in terms of use of language, in terms of semantics, any different than what Trump did? Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting 
case study. I'm not sure how to draw those connections between those. Um, but am I know, wrong in saying that it is the same tactic? Because you could come back to him and say, well, well, I didn't. I told her to do something big, but I didn't mean for her to shoot the president. You yeah, see what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's important for us to sort of set aside the the question of intent because I don't want to try to get into Charles Manson's mind. <laughs> I don't want to try to get into Donald Trump's mind either. Um, you know, frankly, I'm. But I'm more interested in the way he's using language and the way people are receiving that language and attributing meanings to that language. So if you know, going back to the Charles Manson. Uh, case that you brought up, if if his follower interpreted that as I need to go and attack President Ford, um, then that had a real world effect that led her to do that. But then, you know, as I think what you're, you're saying here is there's still that that gap between what he said explicitly versus the meaning that was derived from that context in which you know, the follower was communicating with Charles Manson. So mm -hmm. um, I, really most of most of the meaning that we derive from discursive interaction, anytime we're using language, a lot of that is implied. We're not always going around and explicitly stating um, what, you know, e exactly what we want people to take from um, our, our, our utterances. Um, I think that's that's an important point that a lot of people tend to overlook. But when you start to study linguistics and, dis and do discourse analysis, you realize that context is huge for the way that we make sense of um, the interactions that we're in. Hmm. Okay, I, I I will I will move off of that topic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually have more to Trump. say, but I, well, yeah, the core, yeah, how do sociopaths communicate? And they, frankly, in my opinion, they communicate the same. It doesn't matter if one is a millionaire and one is a um, living in the desert off of uh, off of other people. They communicate the same way. But mm -hmm. but we'll move on from that. And um, last question: When after the election? The recent election, presidential election, um, there were many op-eds and uh, much conversation in the media about what about the next time we come across somebody who behaves like an autocrat or wants an autocracy? Are they going to be smarter than him? Are they going to be craftier than him? You know, we almost saw, for many of us, we truly believe we almost saw uh, this country lose its democracy. So this is a question. What's going to happen when the rise of another... Uh, occurs. So my question for you, if you if you feel like answering it from your perspective, um, how big of a worry really is that now that we've sort of gone through uh, something we probably thought we would never go through in this country, now that we've gone through this one time, how much worry is there that the next person who wants to sort of take over and become a dictator uh, is going to be craftier, smarter, better at manipulating? Um, is that a, do you think in terms of language that that is a really big concern for us and how should we watch out for it? If yeah, so. I think that's a, that's an important question. Um, I guess I want to sort of put that back on the American people and, and pose that as a question to them. You know, to what extent are you ready to deal with the next Donald Trump? Um, you know, the, the, the next demagogue. Are you able to discern you know, some of these language games that are being played and, and sort of see through them. Because um, I mean, I think ultimately it's it's up to the American people, the lessons that we learned from the last four years and 
and how we uh, move forward from here. I think, unfortunately, we're still very divided. You know, I think in many ways, um, the the divide between the, the Trump supporters and the rest of America is maybe in some ways, you know, potentially um, we sort of look at it as dormant now because we have a new administration, but it's still there under the surface, right? So to what extent are we going to continue to keep going our separate ways, sort of live in different realities um, versus eventually come back together? And I think that's an open question. I'm, I'm certainly not going to make any predictions about the future. Um, you know, I would hope that we would be able to learn from um, you know, the last four years and, and, and not fall uh, prey to that again. But, you know, like, like you say, I, I am worried about some of the more professional politicians, if, if, if that's the right word, I don't know. I mean, I think in many ways, Trump really wasn't a politician, but there are politicians who have a lot more experience in politics who are sort of imitating his style. You know, people like Josh Hawley or even Ted Cruz is starting to adopt that. And we see this um, among many of of the Republicans now, who who are sort of split off from the the traditional Republicans. It'll be interesting to see what happens within the Republican Party itself as well, mm-hmm. whether or not a, a realignment takes place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting what you said about him not being a real politician or not being a certainly not being um, not real, but um, hadn't been around, hadn't been a politician for very long. He wasn't, isn't. However, he was very skilled at propaganda. And now that's something he'd been doing for at least 30 years. So the thing that he was good at, you know, if you look at television interviews and his um, sort of false persona that he was uh, had created for himself, throughout at least 30 years, he was practicing propaganda. We saw it on TV and in films. Yeah, that's a good way to, to put that. I mean, in many ways, he, you know, he's a showman, um, which began in his time as, as a real estate uh, developer through his time, you know, on, on reality TV. And I think he really brought a lot of those qualities of being a showman um, to his politics, uh, you know, which is why his style was so inflammatory for so many people. And it really drew you in, you know, whether or not you... Um, whether or not you you liked him or not, you know, some people liked him, some people hated him, but everybody watched him, right? Everybody listened to him. It was just hard. It's hard to look away from those uh, types of you know, people. Um, you know, one of the essays in my my recent book, I I talk about this idea from professional wrestling called kayfabe, this um, adherence to the the big lie, sort of the illusion of realness, and it, it sort of draws upon that showmanship. And it's sort of, you know, everybody within the wrestling arena sort of suspends their disbelief and just agrees that we're going to be emotionally moved by the entertainers up there in the ring. Um, and in many ways, I think, you know, Trump, Trumpian discourse was very similar in that it, it, it really is asking a lot of the diehard Trump supporters to kind of set aside issues of truth. Um, and just look at what he's saying in terms of how well it, it resonates emotionally with them. Um, I also call this the, the typification of a worldview. So, you know, he'll say things, 
maybe about immigration or um, you know other hot button issues that are really important to his supporters. And he could say things that sort of resonate with their worldview, their, their underlying ideological perspective. And it doesn't even have to be true, right? But as long as it typifies that worldview, it sort of brings that audience along with him. And so he was very, you know, capable of, of doing that in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. But going back to, I, I realize I'm doing this again, but I'm going back from the, the lens of the psychologist or a psycho, psychoanalytical point mm-hmm. of view, is that he couldn't do it without the enablers, right? Because part yeah. of what they, they see and hear is is the triangle of pop, the propaganda triangle, right? You hear it from one person, that person that you're finding the charismatic leader to be, right? The Trump mm-hmm. or the charismatic leader. Then you have a news source or sources telling you the same exact thing, even if it's still a lie, even if it's not true. And then you'll have others, and the others could simply be friends, colleagues, whoever. So you've got some kind of a triangle going here in terms of, because it's not just coming out of his mouth. He when I say I'm looking through it from the um, psychoanalytical uh, lens again, no sociopath can do anything of real harm to the masses without enablers. None of them can. They they cannot survive without their enablers. And Absolutely. they and he had that 100 percent. Yeah, I love the way you, you put that. And, you know, so coming at it from um, a linguistic perspective, what I would how I would sort of explain that is that. Trump is part of a broader, what we call a speech chain. So, you know, he says something, his followers repeat it, it gets repeated in the media. So there's this intertextual connection that propagates through society um, where, you know, the language used by Trump is sort of ratified in many way, ways, whether it's, it's repeated verbatim or whether it's reshaped in ways that still remain faithful to you know, the original message that he was conveying, some, sometimes it even gets amplified, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's very powerful to have people around him uh, enable that, like you say. And I think that's one of the most disappointing things that I think a lot of us um, were, were just in disbelief, especially the first, you know, year or so, just looking at how all the Republican politicians around Trump were allowing him to get away with so many egregious things. Um, it was almost like they were making a pact with the devil. And, you know, it's interesting this past January after the attack on the Capitol, how, you know, some of them like Mitch McConnell were trying to still have it both ways, right? They wanted to condemn Trump and his role in inspiring the insurgents who attacked the Capitol. But, but on the other hand, they still didn't want to condemn him for doing it. So it's... Um, it's an unfortunate situation, but I think, you know, you could probably make the argument that in many ways the Republicans did pay a price for that politically, at least insofar as, you know, the Democrats regained the White House as well as the Senate, even by just a narrow margin. Mm-hmm. 